Hannah Brown. Chris McLeish, here we are back with episode number 72, two months after the last one. <laughs> yeah, well, we had to come back to it at some point. We did. I mean, we have tried for a little while to get our paths to cross and it's to no avail. It's been a challenge. And so, I mean, I'm just going to embarrass you now in front of our lovely listeners and pals, but like mm-hmm. the fact that we were supposed to record last night and literally at 12 o'clock last night, McLeish texted me saying, I forgot to tell you that I actually ended up working late. <laughs> Yeah, I just completely lost track of the entire day. I was meant to be at work yesterday from two till half three. Uh-huh. Well, half one oh, till half three. Oh, a lovely little shift. And I worked until ten. That's quite a difference. And so the day just really ran away from because me. Because it got to the point, it got to like eight o'clock and I was like, oh, maybe he's just like got caught up at work or he's just forgot. Uh, that's okay. I won't. <laughs> well, it was both. <laughs> it was both. Both is so, exactly what happened. Um, but that's fine because then yeah. we ended up both being off tonight, so it worked out quite nicely in our It's favor. worked out quite nicely. Although today has run away from me, I was up this morning doing a wee job at nine mm-hmm. and finished the job just after twelve, and the next thing I knew, it was five. There you go. How time flies when you're having fun. But I don't think I was having fun. I don't know what I did in those five hours. I had a shower and washed my hair. Can you remember out. what you did in that time or did you just black out? No. I, well, I did a bit of work. Okay. But not, not, not five hours worth, I don't think. <laughs> well, clearly you did. Well, I had a self-tape to do. Oh, I did loads of things, actually. Showered, self-tape, did some work. Wow. None of it was worth remembering. I should say, we have been very busy with our time. We've not really done anything exciting in our time away. We just have been very busy bees when it comes to earning the monies. Um, yeah, but, one needs to. Um, I had a day off the other day, and do you know what I did for two hours straight without stopping? I did crosswords. <gasps> oh, that's nice. And I'm not often a crossword human, but um, I needed something to be a distraction. So on my phone, I was like, oh, what could mm-hmm. I get? So... I used to be an Angry Birds kind of girl, but that's quite a violent game. And I was like, I need, <laughs> I need something chill. Something soothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so crosswords I, is the way. Yeah, I downloaded the New York Times crosswords app. And oh my God, I'm mm-hmm. so addicted to that thing. And, oh, and I'm not very good at crosswords. Lots of people do them in work and I'm not great, but I, I'm enjoying my time immensely. That's the main thing. Yeah. Have you ventured into the cryptic land? No, I'm not that clever. <laughs> oh, but it's not clever. Well, it is. It yes, is. it is. You feel like Come a genius on. when you succeed. But one, so I always looked at those clues in cryptic crosswords, and I thought this is an actual riddle that makes no sense to me. Turns out there are rules, oh. and if you follow the rules, you'll find the solution. And therefore, cryptic crosswords are so my thing. I'm a Virgo. I love rules, <laughs> and so it. You solve it by following the rules, and it's so good. Oh, but like even doing just like your normal standard crosswords, because a thing I learned about the New York Times crossword is that the mm. easiest one is on the Monday, and it gets harder as the week goes on. And um, yeah, so like in theory, I think it's like the Sunday crossword should be the hardest one of the week. I think that's how it works. Um, but there is words. That's the day of rest. <laughs> you shouldn't have to strain your brain. But there are like crosswords that I've done and there are words that I have never heard of in my life that's one thing that I find quite confronting about crosswords yeah I'm like (laughs) that's not possibly a real word is it and it is (laughs) it is (laughs) well I don't think 
I don't think it's cheating if you have a dictionary or thesaurus nearby. No, I think that's when fair. you're doing crosswords. That's yeah. fair. You should. There's an app. There's an app called Learn Cryptic Crosswords. I think. Oh. And it's a nice step-by-step guide teaching you the different mm-hmm. indicators you'll find in a clue in order to solve a cryptic crossword puzzle. Yeah. It honestly, highly recommend it. Yeah. I was at work the other day, or did I say the other day? Literally, like I don't know, end of September. <laughs> cool <laughs> it was a while ago and there was a really long uh, break and i was at a desk looking for something and do you know what i found i found a tin of dobble <gasps> someone just lying around in the wild someone had brought dobble in with them because they knew there was a long break and i was like oh my god who has dobble so that day <laughs> this is so pathetic and amongst our work it was like a lovely team building night there was me and like the sort of older staff, we all sat with a little crossword book, ironically enough. Love and, all, that. and all the youths, all the young people, they were all off playing a very violent game of doubles. So it worked out quite nicely. What a dream. I, I like, like that. This is so wholesome and lovely. Who needs to drink alcohol when you can play double in an evening? Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know what double is, it's like a really extreme snap. I should point out that myself, you, Matt, and Michael, had a, the last mm-hmm. time we were all around at yours, we played a very violent game of double, and Michael and I nearly fell out over it. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, it definitely it gets the blood flowing, if nothing else. One hundred percent. It's very, it's um, a very good game. It's quite stressful, but like a fun stress. Well, I was going to tell you, uh, off pod, we were discussing things yes, that have happened recently, we were. and I was going to tell you a story that's just a bit stupid. Uh huh. Because I haven't been well for the best part of. 12 days now. Yes. So I've got a full-blown chest infection, mm-hmm. which is why my voice might be a couple of tones lower than normal. And I might cough from time to time, but you'll never know because I'll edit it out. It's exactly. And you're hitting those baritone vibes to do. We were at choir last week and I had to leave early because I started to feel really unwell. So I was mm-hmm. like, I need to go home, please. Mm-hmm. So I went home early. And then we were at choir on Monday and the conductor came up to ask me how I was feeling. As I approached him to tell him that I was miming. And in that... <laughs> yeah, I was miming. Um, so in that moment of, oh, he's coming towards me, I then completely lost my mind. And when he said to me, how, how are you feeling? I just went, I'm rotten. I'm rotten. I feel rotten. I feel so unwell. And then he was like, oh, right, okay. Oh, uh, right. And I was like, so I'm kind of miming right now. And he was like, that's fine. Just do what you need to do. And I was like, cool, thanks, thanks, thanks. Because the thing is, is I showed up for rehearsals thinking I'll just sit at the side and just kind of observe uh-huh. and take the same notes as everyone else. So I know yep. what, if anything's been changed. Uh-huh. But then someone was there filming for a little trailer for our concert that's coming oh, up. Oh, no. So I was like, oh, I can't be sitting at the side. So I had to sit in the middle in mine. And, um, and then I went, that was during the interval, like our little okay. break. And I sat back down for the second half and I was like, I can't believe I came in so strong there. I should have... <laughs> eased in maybe even said i was feeling a little bit better i was getting there but no i really no. went i was like I, i'm so ill uh so i had to at the end of the concert at the end of the rehearsal uh-huh. go up to the conductor the md and be like uh, thank you for asking how i was feeling uh the answer is much better thank you and uh he was like all right okay and i was like i just sat there for the whole second half of rehearsal overthinking the fact that i came on so strong (laughs) it's like i'm ill i'm so ill and um and he was he was laughing so it was kind of funny but i was like what a 
Oh, why did I make a situation that could have just been me being like, oh, thank you for asking. I'm feeling, I'm feeling a bit better, but I'm still a bit dodged. Literally. So I'm kind of taking it easy. Nope. But instead, I like screamed in his face. I'm really unwell. I'm really so ill. And then, yeah, it was just, it was such a wild interaction. And then he kept laughing at me. It's like, I wouldn't have given it a second thought. And I was like, that's the problem is I'd give it too many thoughts. I'd give it thoughts all night. Exactly. So I had to come and apologize. <laughs> There's too many of like, them for me. I had to get it off my chest. Oh my so god, funny. that is actually so funny. That poor MD must have been like, whoa. <laughs> I like to think so that was just in your panic. Because you, you were like yeah. building yourself up to go and speak to him. And then the fact that he was coming your way, your brain just went crap. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I think that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Um, it's one of those authority figure moments where, oh. although in my head I say I, I don't, I treat everyone the same. I don't, I don't really uh-huh. care if you're an authority figure. I'll just speak to you like a pleb. But in that moment, the plebitude of that person uh-huh. escaped me. And I felt like I was talking to like a head teacher or something. I just you went, I went wild. The other thing that I had, which you are also aware of, but it was wild, uh-huh. is that my mum got blinking sepsis. She did. She really did. Yeah. It was very scary. My mum was in hospital over her birthday and for the whole of October because she got taken to hospital in a flash and blue light van uh, with blinking sepsis. Yeah, it's very scary. Have we spoken before about funny feelings that you get about things? We have before, yes, because I think you spoke about this with your mum breaking her arm or something like that, or leg. Yes, similar situation. Yeah. So Matt and I were both at work mm-hmm. um, when my sister phoned me to say we've had to phone an ambulance because mum can't move mm-hmm. uh, and she's in agony. So we have had to phone an ambulance and I hung up and that was the only context I had is we phoned an ambulance, uh-huh. mum can't move, she's in a lot of pain. She had a hip replacement this year, so it's yeah. not completely out of the question that she, w- she might have complications or she'd be in pain from that. But I immediately went to Matt and I was like, I think I have to go home because I'm really worried mum has something like sepsis. Ah, uh, you put it into the universe. I fully predicted. I predicted that mum had sepsis with no context clues. Maybe, maybe because you knew that she had an infection or had been like prone to infections, it was kind of always there in the back of your mind. And that's why... Well, a twist in the tail uh-huh. is the reason that this infection happened is because of COVID. Mm. So she had a, an infection in her hip. Uh-huh. That seemed to be sorted. Caught COVID, then developed pneumonia and was really ill with pneumonia. Had to be on antibiotics for that. Was really unwell, blah, 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 blah. And then as the pneumonia cleared was when this started to happen. Yeah. And the reason she didn't, what had happened was the infection in her hip originally didn't go away. Uh-huh. But COVID and the pneumonia made her body fight that and prioritize that. And it was as if the infection in her hip was Ooh. gone. But it wasn't. It was there brewing for another six months. Yeah. That would do it. So that's how it had turned into sepsis. Yeah. Wild. It's so scary. But one thing, we, we did see each other in person, however fleecingly. We did. We did. Chris came to see a show that I was... I was going to say MDing. That's not right. SMing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, not MDing. Stage managing. Um, and one evening, I did not know that McLeish and the lovely Mrs. Jones were coming to visit to see the show. Mm. And I walked out um, to see how the house was looking for clearance. And there, in the front row, lo and behold, was the McLeish household. <laughs> and I immediately went, Hannah Burrow. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> so if anyone is a listener in the audience that like, night, would be like, "Whoa!" Yeah. Have I left my phone on? And I was like, "Oh, look, it's it's Chris McLeish." And I was like, "I can't talk now because I need to go and shout at some actors to get them backstage." But I'll come and see you at the end. But yeah, and I wish I had some like fun tales to tell you about it. But nope, it all went very well. It was a cracking show. It was excellent. See, the ironic thing is, is that I actually never saw it because I was backstage for the whole thing. So that's nice to know that it was good. <laughs> You'll have to just see the tapes. Roll the tapes. That was good. Did you see um, me taking a table and some chairs on? I did. It was very slick. Thank you. Because there was no yeah. way of getting them on. It was kind of doing like a dance scene and everybody in it had to have really moody faces. And the director was like mm. to me and my assistant, he said... Um, we'll need you guys to take them on but if you try and fit in by looking like staring I'm like Brutal. you want me to look pissed off I can do that <laughs> <laughs> that's well within my repertoire I can do that <laughs> <laughs> also there was one of our mutual friends and colleagues who also has a theatre company and I had stage managed her show at the start of this year and she was like do you not remember did you not hear me shouting HB and I was like no, I didn't. Sorry. <laughs> when I when I moved a bench <laughs> at the end of the show. Um, because that came from... Because did you know that on that show I worked for her, there was another Hannah Brown in the cast? <sighs> what are the chances? Interesting. What are the chances? So there was a Hannah Brown in the cast and then there was me, who was stage manager. So we had to have a nickname for me. So mine's became HB because I'm reliable like the pencil. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. That is n- that's a nice way to. So I quite it. like yeah. that. I quite liked that. I have a film recommendation for you. It's currently in the cinemas, but it will probably be on streaming soon. I would presume. It's a film called The Lost King. Have the I spoken Lost about this? King. On I don't think I've I don't heard think about that. Um, I don't think you have. But it's got um, Sally Hawkins in it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of. Um, the Shape of Water theme. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And it's about the, when they found Richard III's body in that car park. <gasps> yes, it's I love that story. so good. It's so good. Like, honestly, I really highly recommend it. It's such a quirky, and it's filmed extensively in Edinburgh, pretty much primarily in love Edinburgh, because that. that's where the lady lived, and it looks incredible. Like, it's so good. Um, it's just, it's just one of those films that's really sort of quintessentially British because it's quite quirky. It's a little bit weird, yeah. but it's also just really lovely. And then I went to see that um, with my parents, and then that night immediately came home and watched the documentary that they made <laughs> about it. Great, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because nice. obviously I had nice, to go nice. down like uh, Richard the Third hole. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, but I highly recommend. It's a really good. Little, just a little quirky film, like a little feel-good film. Um, Beautiful. But yeah, highly recommend to all you history fans out there. Oh, speaking of films, yeah, there was quite a big release over Halloween, wasn't there? <gasps> there was. Did you watch it? Well, September. Yes, I did. <laughs> I Hocus Pocus Two is, of course, what to which you refer. Okay, look, listen. The last two months have just merged into one big month. Okay. <laughs> I have no concept of time anymore. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, it wasn't as bad as the original film. The original film came out in summer, which yeah. is not ideal for it's a Halloween not great. film. Not great marketing. Um, 
But yeah, I I enjoyed it. I okay. thought it was it had enough wink wink nudge nudge to the to the original. Uh-huh. To keep to keep the the old fans loyal. I think there were things that I didn't love about it. Okay. Primarily it seemed like it looked it looked like it was filmed in a soundstage, which it was. Right, okay. But it looked like it was. Yeah. It wasn't dark and gritty enough because the original film was so gritty with interesting shots and close-ups mm-hmm. and it's all quite dark and candlelit. Whereas this film was so shiny and clean and Disneyfied. Yeah. There's almost about the original, because I controversially have not yet seen Hocus Pocus 2. I have not had the time. That's okay. Um, That's okay. But with the original one, it's almost like you can tell the film's quite grainy. Like, yes, it has yeah. that kind of, kind of old filmy feel to it. Yeah. I think there was obviously restrictions in how they could film because of COVID, mm-hmm. which I unfortunately feel like you can tell. Oh, great. Okay. So it's like not translated well then. Yes, I feel like you can see uh, social distancing oh, right, okay. by looking at the screen. Yeah. Which is problematic in some scenes. And it also meant that there wasn't much sense of a danger. Right. Because okay. you always felt like everyone was at arm's length from one another. <laughs> everyone was literally two meters away from each other. Yeah. There was st- a lot of stuff that I really liked about it. Matt really didn't like it. Oh, and okay. he's just about as big a fan of Hocus Pocus as, yeah. Hocus Pocus as I am. Yeah. Um, I would like them to do a third one and for it to be filmed more in the style of the first one. Right. Okay, that's fair. And I would also like them to touch on a... St- they did a there was an unofficial Hocus Pocus sequel. Mm-hmm. And I would like them to do that story, which is about... Um, it brings back other old characters. Ah. Whereas this was just, it was too many new elements. I think mm. it would have been nice to be a continuation of the same story. Yeah, that's fair. Anyways, that's my, my hot take. But I also got to do my Sarah Sanderson costume, you which did. I've been waiting you to do my You had a proper Hocus Pocus themed Halloween this year, which is very exciting. Oh, I did. Yeah, I felt... I, it was one of my favourite costumes I've ever, ever, ever had. I don't think there'll be ev- anything ever more iconic than you dressed as Sarah Sanderson wafting your skirt about at the top of a closed staircase. I agree. The <laughs> only thing is that none of the photos are good of my face. Every photo I look like I've fallen asleep. That's the one thing I was disappointed about. If you zoom in, every single one I look like I've, I've passed out for a minute. <laughs> On top of that, you went to Hocus Pocus in concert. I did. That was blinking marvellous. I haven't even asked you about that. Yeah, it was great. So they played the film, mm-hmm. and then the film was underscored by a live orchestra. And was it? An and it was amazing. Time? It was so good. Aww. And um, yeah, I, th- the music in that film was just so excellent. Uh-huh. And this orchestra just played it perfectly. It was perfect. I loved yep. it. It was so 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 good. Uh, and then obviously we were just watching the film anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> The film was on, so I was like, this is the best time, because it's my favourite thing to do, is to watch Hocus Pocus. And was there any people um, dressed up there? There were a few, but not many. Okay. Uh, we didn't dress up, because we went for dinner beforehand. Fair So enough. we didn't dress up. But um, yeah, it was really nice. Dreams can come true. Um, <laughs> shall we fire in with stories? I feel like we probably should. 
Yes, I believe you do be first. Marvellous. I have to say that this week I would take us into the land of the theatre. Oh my God, which... we're hardly ever there. I know. <laughs> I just thought it'd be about time to return. That's um, fair enough. It has been a while so, since we've been to the theatre on the pod. So while the theatre provides entertainment, the preparation and production of live performances can pose a haberdashery of hazards to those working in any area of the theatre. I'm very much here for the alliteration. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> that took me days to write. Days. It's a very long word, See, to be fair. It's true. It's because of my addiction to sewing that I've developed. <laughs> yeah. That's probably that's probably exactly probably why. why. So from the actors on stage to set designers behind the scenes and musicians tooting away in the orchestra pit, injuries can vary from harness failure whilst transporting an actor from A to B to falling equipment. However, if you are extra lucky, you may also be struck by a falling actor following a case of harness failure. That's a lucky combo. There you go. With the complexities of a theatre production, there are a plethora of potential hazards. In fact, one hazard, a falling backdrop, is portrayed in one of our personal favourites, The Phantom of the Opera. It is indeed. Although I've seen some versions of it where it's a falling sandbag, but I think most of the time it's a piece of set. Yeah. I mean, a sandbag would do you some harm as well. Give you a right crick in the neck, <laughs> I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the phantom wasn't to blame when a large backdrop hit brett michaels on the back of the head while performing with the rest of the rock of ages cast at the 2009 tony awards oh that was nothing to do with the phantom other potential hazards in the theater include rigging and flying hazards repetitive strain injuries among dancers and carpenters solvent and chemical exposures noise-induced hearing loss, electrical hazards, falls from heights, as well as hazards also found on construction sites. Because really, theatres are just boxed in construction sites half the time. Effectively. Literally. I speak from experience. (laughs) Yes. As someone who literally two weeks ago was responsible for the health and safety of a cast can confirm there were just bits of scaffolding poles and bits of wood and wires just yeah. everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. not a fun time. So this week, my story is going to be a collection of some of the more extreme theatre accidents. Oh, I'm very excited about this. During the final run-through for an amateur production of John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men in Florida, in the last scene where George shoots his pal Lenny to protect him from a lynch mob... Spoilers! The show's... Oh, massive spoiler. <laughs> Maybe I should do spoiler alert before I say the twist. <laughs> Although, if you have, if you, if folks, if you don't know what happens in *Of Mice and Men*, where have you been? And did you really do standard grade English? Let's be honest here. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Well, in this scene okay. that I've just ruined for everybody, yeah, the director shot an eighty-one-year-old actor in the back of the head <gasps> at point-blank range only to realise that the gun he was using was loaded with live ammunition. Why? Luckily, <laughs> luckily the shot only grazed the old lad's skull and he didn't have to spend too much time in hospital. Wait, he shot him at point-blank range? But only yeah, got... and he... Yeah, just you wait, just you oh, wait. No. 
Uh, so the pistol had been borrowed from a fellow cast member who had, it appeared, forgotten that it was loaded. In his defense, the gun-wielding maniac said, quote, I'm the actor, I'm the director, and we're running late. And without thinking, I didn't check the gun. I was like, oh my God, dear Lord, no. Luckily, I was a lousy shot. <laughs> so he shot him at point, ba- point blank range and still missed. Still missed. So that's good. That was yeah. luck right there. <laughs> um, as for the victim, he claimed the worst part of being shot was the loud bang which caused him to lose his hearing momentarily, followed by a painful tetanus shot administered by nurses at the hospital. The show went ahead on schedule just two hours later with an understudy filling the part. Oh, well, there you go. What a luxury, an Amdram group with understudies? Understudies, oh my God. I've been in shows where they would have been like, get your butt back here from hospital and get on stage ASAP. Never mind nearly being shot through the head. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have anyone to go on in your place? Yeah. Another gun-based mishap occurred when British actor David Birrell was shot in the face with a prop gun during a matinee performance of Stephen Sondheim's Passion. The scene involved Birrell, who played Colonel Ricci, challenging a cast member in an onstage duel. It appeared that during the duel scene, Birrell's licensed replica stage gun misfired causing some debris to enter his eye. Grim. Ew. I hate anything with eyes. No. Anything with eyes, and I'm out. <laughs> Beryl, who has also starred in Monty Python's Spamalot and Coronation Street, recuperated at London's University College Hospital. That same year, the Royal Shakespeare's company, Daryl De Silva, accidentally shot himself in the hand with a prop gun while rehearsing. Oh, that's a full stop. The inflection was incorrect. (laughs) Later, Beryl sued the theatre for £250,000 because he was left with an unsightly disfigurement, quote-unquote, claiming the disability he suffered has affected his career. Donmar Warehouse denied negligence and sought a contribution to the damages from the prop specialists, who they said supplied the gun, which is called History in the Making Limited. According to papers filed at the High Court, the actor suffered, suffered, suffered. suffered total and permanent blindness in his right eye after Ooh. a blank cartridge in the gun he was firing, ejected rearwards and at high velocity through the breech, cut into the revolver and into his right eye. Ooh. It added that the accident left Mr. Burrell's eye shrunken and unsightly which has forced him to wear a cosmetic shell to disguise its appearance. The prosthetic eye looks as though it is staring and looks sunken in appearance, which coupled with scarring and distortion means the overall effect is of marked asymmetry to the upper half of Mr. Birrell's face. It was also claimed that the actor lost the facility of binocular vision, has difficulty judging distances and with hand-eye coordination. He tends to collide with objects on his right-hand side. I have fine eyesight and I collide with things all the time. I mean, me too. Me too. But also, fair play to him. It's this, I can understand his grievance. I can understand his grievance. Yeah, nobody wants to get shot in the face at their workplace, you know. In their defence to the action, the Donmar Warehouse admits that the theatre company are liable under the Provision and Use of Work Equipment Regulations 1998. 
However, it said it has it reserved the right to claim against History in the Making Limited, stating that they never had the chance to examine the gun as it was taken as part of a criminal investigation and not returned. Lawyers for History in the Making said the guns supplied had been completely serviced and cleaned prior to supply to the theatre. It claimed the main cause of the accident was due to the theatre company using defective ammunition, which History in the Making did not supply. Beryl later went on to win the Critics Award for Theatre in Scotland for Best Male Performance for his portrayal of Sweeney Todd. I did not know that. Yeah. Oh. So that's his story. It took a nice turn at the end. There you go. I had a positive at the end of it. That's lovely. Speaking of prizes, a film that I did in 2019 has been nominated for Best Sci-Fi in the Short Film Awards, Britain Short Film Awards. Oh, that's very exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks very much. Didn't know it was still working the circuit, but apparently it is. (laughs) So that's nice. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of our boy Sweens. Yes. Big Sweens. An actor narrowly escaped death after slashing his own throat on stage with a real knife instead of a blunt stage prop blade. Daniel Hovels slumped to the floor with blood pouring from his neck during a performance at Vienna's Burg Theatre. He was rushed to hospital with a deep slice to his throat, which fortunately missed his main artery. Yep. A doctor who treated... Uh, Daniel Hovels said if the actor had put a little more pressure on the knife or even struck an artery he would probably have bled to death on on the stage Jesus the real life drama happened during a performance of Friedrich Schiller's play Mary Stewart about Mary Queen of Scots ah big massa Mr Hovel's character was supposed to die by suicide and the actor used what he thought was a blunt prop weapon. The audience is said to have applauded what they thought was a stunning special effect (laughs) and only realised something was wrong when the actor staggered off stage to receive treatment. The police were told that the knife had been bought at a local shop. Can I just... How... How do these things happen? Yeah, this is what people this is what people like you would do. The well, stage managers would well, check these things. Like, what? <laughs> oh, so I just want to know the thought process of like, okay, so maybe they had to go and get a new knife and maybe everyone thought the other person had blunted it and they hadn't. But it's just Communication is with, key. With jaggy objects, it's always better to check. <laughs> 100%. Always I fully agree. Because you know these mad actors, they get really into it. <laughs> they do. They do. It's true. You never know Very what's going to happen. Yes. Uh, a police officer said that the knife even still had a price tag on it. What? Okay, that's really, that's bad prop management right there. That's very bad. Are they going to return that's it? Really bad. Don't want to get Christmas presents from that person because you'd find out the cost of it exactly. immediately. My God. Mr. Hovels recovered after hospital treatment and in true theatrical form appeared on stage the following night, although with a bandage around his neck. There we go. Nice, happy ending. So the the moral of the story is always check your props. Absolutely. Because you never know who might have a grudge against you. No, it's very true. And we can all agree that acting is a cutthroat business. (laughs) (laughs) Ah... Lol. Okay, <laughs> moving on. 
Connor Madden thought his stage career was about to take off when he was cast as Hamlet at the age of 24. He was oblivious to what the fates had in store for him in Elsinore. Mid-fight, Connor recalls the clang of a metal sword falling to the floor beside him, and a fellow actor cradling him and asking if he was alright. The 800-strong audience remained still, assuming this was all part of the play. Then the silence was broken by the hurried footsteps of the company's artistic director taking to the stage. He apologised to the audience and said the show must end. There was a round of applause and the curtain fell. Now this particular production had not long since arrived at the Everyman Palace Theatre in Cork and the stage was slightly smaller than the cast were used to rehearsing in. The actors had a little time to get used to it but the final technical rehearsal had to be cut short before the final scene in which Hamlet is mortally wounded. Given the success of their previous performances, the actors confidently made their way on stage and everything went well until swords were drawn in the play's climactic final moments. Connor and another actor found themselves standing closer to each other than they usually would. And this was too close, it would turn out. A rapier struck Connor just below his eye. The sword did not go through his skull, but it fractured the orbital bone of his eye and left him unable to move. Oh my god. Yeah. Connor was immediately taken to hospital, but it took some time for doctors to work out what was wrong. After three days, he was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury. At first, he was under the impression that he would be a short-term, it would be a short-term problem and that he would be back on stage in about a week. But over that first week, Connor's condition deteriorated. Soon, he was unable to feed himself and his dad had to care for him. It took him seven months to relearn how to walk and talk. And although his brain injury had permanent effects on his speech and mobility, he was able to return to work within a year. Oh my God. Yes. As you can imagine, acting isn't what it once was for him, and he experienced post-traumatic stress. To accommodate his needs, the theatre company Connor works with allows him to take regular breaks and print scripts off on slightly larger font. Connor has since played the character of Hamlet, Hamlet again in a play called The Rehearsal, playing the Dane. In this adaptation of Shakespeare's tragedy, which he had taken on tour internationally, Mm -hmm. three actors audition for the role of Hamlet on stage and the decision is made at the interval. I think that sounds like a cracking idea. That's a very good idea. That does sound very good. That sounds really good. Yeah. He claims that the best thing to come out of his incident was how he's transformed into a more compassionate person. Aww. Every cloud. Speaking of passionate people. Oh. The Passion of Christ is performed Mm. in towns and cities across Brazil each year. Mm -hmm. Around the world as well, but specifically for the story. Specifically Brazil. Local productions can involve up to 500 actors and are watched by thousands of visitors. In 2012, Tiago Klimek, 27, was playing the role of Judas in a local theatre company's production of The Passion of the Christ in Itarare. I haven't heard of this place, but I don't know the name of the street around the corner, so it doesn't really mean much. But it's somewhere in Brazil. Okay. Enacting the disciple's death by suicide following his betrayal of Jesus, Uh as portrayed in the Gospel of Matthew, 
the actor experienced complications and was left hanging for four minutes before other cast members realised that anything was wrong. Oh my god. By the time he was taken down, Klimek was unconscious. He was placed in a medically induced coma. Scans diagnosed cerebral hypoxia, which caused extensive brain damage because of a lack of oxygen. Police investigated equipment used in the performance, including a rope in which a knot may have been improperly tied at the Criminal Institute of Sorokava. Again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing these right. I've never You're been trying. to Brazil. According to CNN affiliate TV Record, Klimek was due to wear the harness routinely borrowed for those performances. He was reportedly left unsupervised because he knew how to use the equipment, which was a mistake, and he subsequently died following the incident. Jeez, oh. And now, let me do a quick whistle-stop tour of some other onstage incidents before I bring things slightly closer to home. Okay. Okay, so 1673. Moliere, the French actor and playwright, suffered from pulmonary tuberculosis, and he died after being seized by a violent coughing fit while playing the title role in his play Le, Le Malade Imaginaire, which is the imaginary invalid. However, he did not die on stage as he was able to finish the play, but he died a few minutes later at his home. The superstition that green bring, brings bad luck to actors is said to originate from the colour of the clothing he was wearing at the time of his death. Oh, I did not know that. I did not know it was bad luck yes. to wear green. Yes, well, peacock feathers as well, but they've yes, got green in I them. Yes, I knew that one. Oh. In 1904, Emil Hazda, a Polish comic actor, took six curtain calls after performance before shooting himself in the head in front of the audience. Apparently, it was because a female member of the company had rejected his, rejected his marriage proposal. Oh, so he did it intentionally? Yes. <laughs> so that wasn't really an accident. That was on purpose. <laughs> Still. 1938, on April Fool's Day, actor Joseph Greenwald died during a West Coast premiere performance of Golden Boy. Greenwald collapsed and died on the stage after saying the line, quote, I've waited for this moment all my life. <laughs> it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Oh my God. Katsuki Hiromi, a Takarazuka review actress. I'm so sorry for anyone who speaks these languages that I keep butchering. Died during a performance of Spring Dance at Takarazura's Grand Theatre in Japan. Her clothes were caught in a stage lift, which ripped her body in two. Uh, no. Yep. yep, yep, yep. Oh, no. Yep, apologies. Magician and comedian Tommy Cooper suffered a cardiac arrest during a performance on the London West End television variety show live from Her Majesty's. I was Cooper was known. Died at Her Majesty's. Yes, he did. This yes, now he did. The Phantom Theatre. That's it. There you go. I wonder what their new production's like. I'm intrigued. I know we still haven't seen it yet. After Cooper's after Cooper collapsed, his audience laughed for almost a minute. A minute thinking that his stage character had swooned at the appearance of a pretty magician's assistant. Nope, he had not. <laughs> and even she thought that, Co that Cooper was improvising a little yeah. comic bit. The TV show cut away to an unscheduled break. 
Efforts to revive Cooper backstage failed and he was taken to hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Yeah. In 1990, escape artist Joseph W. Amazing Joe Burris died on Halloween when the glass coffin he was attempting to escape collapsed under the weight of wet cement poured on top of it. Coincidentally, Burris died on the 64th anniversary of the death of Harry Houdini, who was the inspiration behind this performance. Oh my god. Grim. Yeah. In 2016, April 3rd, Indonesian Dangdut singer Irma Bul died during a performance in Karawang, West Java, after she was bitten by a king cobra she had brought on stage as a prop. She continued to sing for 45 minutes after, after the bite, but the, she then collapsed and died. I mean, maybe not bring a real king cobra on as a prop. Maybe not. I think you can Just get, get one from ones. Toys R Us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also in 2016, French barefoot singer Barbara Weldon's collapsed while performing in a church in France, apparently from electrocution from a faulty cable on the floor. And now we're taking things slightly closer to home, as promised. Yes. The Glasgow-born actress Colette O'Neill was accidentally stabbed during the final scene of Jean-Paul Sartre's Hui <laughs> I don't know how that's pronounced. At the Traverse Theatre Club in Edinburgh, oh, which I think yes. is now just... just I'm assuming it's the Traverse Theatre, yes. the Trav, yes. Um, and this was in 1963. The Glasgow Herald reported that her colleague, Rosamond Dixon, had been required to lunge at O'Neill with a knife and drop it after a struggle. But it became entangled in O'Neill's dress and it was accidentally pressed into her stomach. Despite the obvious blood loss, so terrifying that Dixon fainted, O'Neill managed to utter the final fate-tempting line, You can't kill me, I'm already dead, before collapsing. Luckily, it missed Colette's vital organs by inches. She later said, quote, I thought I'd been punched in the the stomach, but Rosamond looked at me in horror and we both realised something was wrong. It was cold in the theatre and I think it was the cold that caused the slip. Theatre staff put out a call for a doctor and two in the audience rushed to treat Colette and her now unconscious colleague. Colette Colette said, Culot, little miss Culot. Uh, Colette said, quote, When the knife went into me, we both knew something was wrong and both gazed at each other in horror. But it happened so quickly, I didn't feel a thing. She was taken to Edinburgh Royal Infirmary for emergency surgery and took three weeks to recover in hospital, missing the rest of the run of the play. Advanced bookings for the play soared (laughs) and Traverse membership rose dramatically to 2,000 on the back of the news coverage. Oh my god. The incident, John Linklater wrote in the Herald in 1992, was to establish the Traverse quickly in the public imagination as a new kind of theatrical experience. Wild and not a little dangerous. Colette died peacefully at home in her bed. Actress and close friend Anne Scott Jones summed up her friend with a touching, entirely apposite tribute, saying, quote, she bowed out of life as gracefully as she lived it. Aww. And those are some of the incidents that have happened in the theatre. The thing that I think I might have accidentally taken out is mm-hmm. that Colette pl- was in Doctor Who 
and she was Martin Clune's mum in an episode. Oh, okay. So if you've ever seen Martin Clune, <laughs> the guy that plays his mum is Colette. O'Neill. It's that one. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, honestly, you actors are not to be trusted. No, no, no. We must be supervised at all times. Literally cannot leave you alone without things. We should start some kind of like actor nanny service. I think, I only think that's wise because these are the times that I've gone back to a prop table and I've been like, where's that thing that I told you to put back in that little square? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, how can you not know? <laughs> Where is the thing? Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's why where's you can't have thing? nice we things. We can't leave you unsupervised, honestly. No, that's true. I'm always very good. I always put things back exactly where they need to be. Okay, that's right. I trust you. I'm like, a Virgo. Yeah, well, exactly. Like, you are... I like rules. Nothing but honest and reliable. But, um, but yeah, you. that's bad. There are some of those ones, though, that you're genuinely like, where, why were people not checking these things? True. The slashing of throats and all that kind of stuff. A non-blunted blade should never have made it into the, the well, theatre. Never mind that's on a prop table. Absolutely. Like, oh, just... Because if that, if that was yeah. me and I was like, oh, we had to get a new knife, but it has not yet been blunted, that would go to the top of my list. A hundred percent. I'd be saying that to everyone with the knife in my hand and some kind of blunting thing. Yeah, exactly. A thing that blunts. I mean, yeah. Emily Blunt. Exactly. I mean, particularly when you're doing something like Sweeney, there's a lot of blades near throats in that show. It's very true. So Very true must be careful with these things yeah because you can never be too safe exactly exactly listen to your prop masters kids <laughs> um right do you want me to kick on off right with yes my my stories this week well yes. we have very fleetingly spoken about this person i'm going to be speaking about um so let's just let's just dive on and trixie's with me as well perfect she is <laughs> she is listening closely Oh, it's so cute. Um, okay, so let us ponder the oft-observed tradition of gathering around a dining table. Yes. Yes. Which makes me believe further that I know Your what you're about to tell Your theory is correct, me. yes. So for centuries, families and friends have seated themselves together, exchanging tales and partaking in a little dinner. And it is often the place where bonds are forged and enemies are made. Just like me and Michael that day playing double. Very true. <laughs> many, many Very a board true. game have we played at your dining table. So there you go. So it can be, it's a nice, a nice collective place. Yet in a rather unassuming townhouse in Victorian Edinburgh, however, a rather unusual pastime did take place. Yes. It did. So imagine the scene. A respected Scottish physician and his colleagues gathered together for an evening, but the conversation is hardly sparkling. Boring times. They had nothing good on Netflix. They had nothing good on Netflix. <laughs> no. They didn't no have recommendations. The, no recommendations. They didn't have Disney Plus. They didn't have good things. No. They didn't have things. Uh, no, so this party um finds themselves all unconscious. Would you believe? Yeah. Yeah. Conked out. You'd think that. And surely that's like the sign of a good night out if you end it unconscious. Surely to God. No? <laughs> Maybe. Little we bit. are two teetotalers. Well, for us, <laughs> for us, that'd be a bad thing. <laughs> but, I'd be like, what happened? But, exactly. For some people, drinking themselves into oblivion is like a personal challenge. So. It's true. I've seen it done. But, I've um, seen it done. 
But in the case of these gentlemen, they weren't... Well, they may have been drinking alcohol, but that's not really what sent them unconscious. Um, because, after all, McLeish, inhaling chloroform is likely to cut a party short. Very true. It's very true. Do you know who I'm going to be talking about this week, McLeish? You're doing Dr. Simpson. I absolutely am. Here we are. What were you going to say there? I have no idea. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Um, so James Young Simpson was born in Bathgate on the 7th of June, 1811, which is coincidentally my younger brother's birthday. Um, not the 1811 bit. Because that would make me very old, since I'm the older one. But here we are. That's true. Um, wow. You've just revealed your secret. There you go. Yeah. You're a Victorian vampire. <laughs> Victorian vampire. Check out. He enrolls <laughs> at the University of Edinburgh. Classic move. Love it. Who didn't do that? Who didn't in those do days? that? Um, in 1825, at first to study an arts degree, but two years later enters into the medical school. Um, Simpson studies under the legend, the myth, Robert Liston. Big Listy. Big Listy, the master of amputation himself. Uh, a gentleman famed for his artistry with a blade and a one-time 300% mortality rate. No one's beat it. No one's beat it. No one's it's beat quite it. the claim. It's quite the claim. <laughs> the Guinness World Book of Records is still looking for someone to try and match him. <laughs> We wouldn't recommend you <laughs> medical professionals on trying to match or beat no. that. Um, no. So in 1830, Simpson receives his licentiate from the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. And after a short time working as a local doctor, he receives his MD in 1832. So Simpson, for a time, uh, lectured in the pathology department of the university. Um, yeah. He was something of quite a high flyer uh, in his... What do you call that? Field? Field, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's after nine o'clock at night, but clearly <coughs> my brain is starting to shut down. So it's um, okay. We're almost there. We're almost there. At age 28, he is appointed Professor of Medicine and Midwifery at the University of Edinburgh, which is quite an achievement for a mere 28-year-old. Well done. Um, Simpson's work and legacy is centred around obstetrics. Science of giving birth. Giving Ill. birth. Giving yeah, Ill. popping out wanes. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. So yep. even with all the wonders of modern science, today pregnancy can still be a highly dangerous process. So to be expectant in the Victorian era was a rather dangerous state of affairs indeed. So the word midwife means with women, if you didn't know. Um, and it is coined to refer to the individual present during the process of labour. So that's where we get that term from. There you go. Do you know what taught me that? Call the midwife. Call the midwife. The best programme in the world. <laughs> it comes in handy. They research it really well because I googled it to double check. And it is correct. That is what that word means. Yeah. They didn't lie. Sister Julianne was not lying to me. No, she, I knew it was her that, she, that said that. Yeah. <laughs> She's Literally. I think I just watched that episode the other day. Literally. Um, so during the 19th century, there had been some disagreement over who, just whom was qualified enough to be attending those in labour, as midwives felt that surgeons did not have the required experience because they were mm. generally men. Um, but the surgeons argued back that midwives were more often than not without any formal medical training, which a lot of the time was true. 
generally midwives kind of learnt from each other and it was kind of a family taught thing rather than actually going to well because they couldn't go yeah. to a university like a vocational <laughs> yeah exactly it had been observed however that the attendance of medical students led to higher cases of pure peril fever i hope that's how you say that um, also known as childbed fever, these postpartum infections were often fatal, which led to a high mortality rate amongst mothers. Um, it is believed mm-hmm. that is what Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr died from. Oh, right. Yeah. They're, we're sex Yeah, they're pretty um, crap ends dying because of postpartum yeah. complications. There you go. I mean, not as crap as the other ones. I mean, they kept Except their heads. The last one. But. <laughs> That's true. Um, anyway, so we have spoken previously on the podcast about the early, highly unsanitary days of surgical practice. And it was yeah. believed that this had a part to play in the transmission of puerperal fever. Medical students and their mentors were famed for the blood-stiffened frock coats and the lack of hand-washing, and it is believed that many mothers contracted postpartum infections due to their transmission of germs between anatomized specimens and patients. So actually, it was the surgeons that were kind of killing them all off. There you go. Delightful. There you go. But here's a fun fact for you, because we like some facts. Did you know it is a Scottish surgeon that is credited with the invention of the surgical chainsaw and its use? I, funnily enough, did. And did I you know only that? found that out recently. Yeah. Ah, there you go. So it is accredited to largely Professor James Jeffrey at the University of Glasgow, who is the same professor that took it upon himself, along with colleague Dr. Andrew Ewer, to conduct galvanic experiments on the body of Matthew Clydesdale. Yes. He we, who yep. we talked about a way back in the day. Back in the day. Yeah. Um, and that was he, a long time ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Really long time ago. So he came up with the concept of a flexible saw, quote unquote, to be used in cases of symphysiotomy, which is also referred to as a pelviotomy. So for what possible reason would a chainsaw be required in childbirth, do you think, McLeish? Well, to get the pelvis opened up to get a baby out it absolutely is yeah great yeah so a symphysiotomy was a surgical practice where cartilage would be divided within the pelvis in order to widen it (laughs) that's so disgusting i mean very i mean oh very very clever for the times and very very clever but yeah absolutely grim oh just traumatic just the thought yeah. of that makes me want to vomit slightly. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> not going to lie. Yeah, there's no need. No. There's, there's absolutely no need. No need. And because um, on top of that, such a horrendous procedure would occur without any pain relief. So yeah. they would be literally lacerating your insides without any kind of pain relief. <laughs> Fun. Um, but that is where James Young Simpson comes into the frame. So, one of the first anaesthetics to be tested in 1799 was nitrous oxide. Do you know what that's commonly known today as? Laughing gas. It is indeed. Full marks to you. <laughs> I went to university. <laughs> well done. I did. <laughs> yes. I don't think I got told that in university, <laughs> but I did go. You did go. And um, my degree is in acting, but that's not relevant. 
I know still. Hey, we will be flogging that horse that you did a term of medicine at the University of Edinburgh because that's an excellent a claim. A year. A year. A, a year. year. I take that back. Like that's an excellent oh, yeah. claim. You followed in the footsteps <laughs> of giants for a year. So then in the mid-1840s, ether was being tested as an anaesthetic. And by 1847, Simpson himself was testing its use in cases. Ether could be a volatile pain reliever. It often paired with severe nausea and sickness. And if used to livery, had the potential to see that the patient would never wake up. Which isn't great. No. Not the best side effect. Um, So the anaesthetic properties of chloroform had emerged in a thesis written by Robert Mortimer Glover. Excellent name. In 1842, and he presents his paper at the University of Edinburgh in 1847. So, let us return to Simpson's dining room on the 4th of November, 1847. Which is just a mere five days ago, plus a really long time. Yeah, (laughs) literally, (laughs) literally. So it is recorded that Simpson and his assistants, James Matthews Duncan and George Skeen Keith, would often spend an evening gathered around the dining table, testing out new pain relief chemicals on themselves, as you do. Got to pass the time. Yeah. Got to pass the time somehow. So with the emergence of the theory regarding chloroform, Simpson acquires a sample from Duncan and Flockhart, which was a pharmacist that was located on North Bridge. The story goes that upon initially inhaling the substance, the surgeons found themselves awash with giddiness before all were rendered unconscious. It is cited that Simpson did not actually regain consciousness until the following morning. The strong dose. What a night. <laughs> what a night. Yeah. Um, so chloroform is hailed as a wonder drug. So now Simpson should consider himself a rather lucky gentleman. Uh, particularly since he decided to self-medicate himself with a potentially lethal compound. It's actually sheer coincidence that Simpson found the perfect dosage because if he'd overdosed himself, which he very easily could have, then chloroform would have been perceived as a lethal substance, which we know today that it is. (laughs) It's not great. Um, But if he hadn't used enough, it wouldn't have had any effect and it would have been dismissed. And then that might not have bridge the gap between ether and our modern anaesthetics as well yeah so on the 15th of november 1847 simpson gives the first public demonstration of chloroform as an anaesthetic and publishes account of a new anaesthetic agent so as much as chloroform was a remarkable drug in cases of victorian childbirth many remained suspicious of it and some even viewed it as a crime against god some people roll my eyes out my face some people mainly men uh, said that it was only right that women should suffer through childbirth that that's that's the way it's supposed I'm sure to they be blink and dead. exactly i would like to see them try <laughs> those same men deserve to have a horse rear kick them in the the private garden if you will i agree with that honestly i'd like yeah. to see them try Its legitimacy in its use as an anaesthetic was only confirmed, however, after its use by the Queen herself. Yes. So Queen Victoria elected to use um, chloroform during the birth of her son, Prince Leopold, and it was administered by one of her attending physicians. Its success and endorsement by the royals secured Simpson's place as a medical pioneer. So Simpson was elected president of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. 
Lord, that was tricky to say, in 1850, and he was created a baronet in 1866, and James Young Simpson died on the 6th of May, 1870. Considered as such an important figure in British history, his family were offered a burial spot in Westminster Abbey, but they declined, instead having him interred at Waddiston Cemetery in Edinburgh. I couldn't tell you where that is. Keep him closer to home. Yeah. I couldn't tell you where that is either, but yeah. we should go on a hunt. We should go on a hunt. Um, yeah. The day of Simpson's funeral was declared a Scottish holiday. There you go. I know. Do we still celebrate it? <laughs> Why have I not been getting these holidays? <laughs> we should get them back dated. Yeah. Um, and 100,000 people lined the route his coffin would take to the cemetery. Beautiful. Yeah. And on top of that, around 1,700 colleagues and industry leaders took part in the funeral procession. In the meantime, millions of the population of Edinburgh died. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> all the doctors were out walking the streets behind this coffin. <laughs> 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 oh, dear. <laughs> So, James Young Simpson was immortalised in a statue that sits at West Princes Street Gardens um, in Edinburgh, and there is a bust of the physician within Westminster Abbey as well. Um, mm-hmm. I have walked past that Princes Street Gardens statue many a time, and didn't yeah. know it was him. Didn't know it was him. To be honest, I don't know if I could... I well, know, maybe I did. Maybe I did. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. I was born <laughs> in the Simpsons... Department of Edinburgh yeah, because the the maternity unit's named after him. Still, yeah, to this that's day. where I was there born. There you go. But do you know that most recently, Simpson has found his way into the world of historical fiction. I blink and dead. Yes, you might be familiar with this, which is why we are here doing this story today, kids. Yeah. So he features as a protagonist in the Raven and Fisher mystery novels, which is written by Scottish novelist Christopher Brookmeyer and his wife, Dr. Marisa Heitzman, under the pseudonym Ambrose Parry. So the novels The Way of All Flesh, The Art of Dying and A Corruption of Blood centre around a fictional assistant of Simpson's and the first novel begins not long before Simpson's testing of chloroform's anaesthetic properties um, in the first book, which you have read. We have, we've had this conversation. I have read. You have yes. read. There is the discovery of chloroform is kind of fictionalised. What well, is fictionalised? Yeah. Sort of what could have happened in that dining room that night. So that is a scene yeah. in the in the novel. Um, the works do bring rather bloodily um, cases of Victorian childbirth to life, and it definitely does not shy away from the innate risk of death to both mother and child. They're quite brutal books. They don't... Have you read the second one? I have read the second one. Did you read the bit about the literal dismantling of a child's skull? I did, yeah. <laughs> inside the womb of the mum? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I Grim. did. Because that's the thing. So Christopher Brookmeyer, for those of you who don't know, is a very, very prolific Scottish crime writer. I do really like his stuff. And his wife is an anesthesiologist, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, because it's, he collaborated with his wife on it because that is her specialty. So, but they're really good books. Highly, highly recommend. They're very, very, they're very well written. But yeah, there is a lot of <laughs> very bloody description of yeah. cases that they have found like in records of yeah. children literally being dismantled like an Ikea table. Yeah. Yeah. It was not a yeah. fun time. You did not want to be expecting it in the Victorian era. No wonder. 
When I got to that bit of the second book, I read it and then I had to read it again. I was like, did I read that right? That they literally are slicing up a a miscarried baby. Yeah. It was basically like, because a lot of the time, which is true, is that I suppose they weren't midwives, they were doctors, but midwives, because that's effectively what they were, had to make the choice of whether to save the mother or save the child. And quite a lot of the time, the mother would take precedence. So, yeah, there was there's quite a lot of brittle descriptions, but I suppose it was brittle times. So, yeah, that's true. Everything was brutal in those days. Yeah, it doesn't shy away um, from that. Um, So chloroform itself is no longer used as an anaesthetic, as it was discovered that overdosage could be fatal due to respiratory and cardiac problems. So, yeah, I mean, not a surprise. Not a surprise. Don't play with chloroform, kids. The chemical is perhaps best known today through its use as an incapacitating agent, and it has been seen to be used in historical murder cases, uh, and it has become something of a cliche in crime fiction. And let me tell you this, it doesn't kick in as quickly as they make it look like it kicks in in TV and film. Yes. That winds Um, me up no end. That's kind of what people know it for. But looking at it, there has been some murder cases where people have used chloroform to drug their victims. Uh, but that is the chemistry of chloroform and Sir James Young Simpson. Magical. It was inevitable we would cover this man eventually. Well, eventually, because also the last podcast, we were talking about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about him. We could do him. He's, he's yeah. literally in the book that I'm reading right now. Yeah, and that's how we discovered we were both reading the same book. I'd already read the first one. But yes. I'm in the, I, I've never finished the second one, so I enjoy oh, the you should fin- How far have you got into the second one? About three quarters of the way. I don't like the. I don't like Raven, so I find it quite a hard read. I think he is supposed to be a bit of a prat, though. Yeah. I, get, I don't know. I, I've really struggled with the second one. Um, I will be honest. The second one was was quite disturbing. Yeah. Like it's rough. The whole concept, because it is a murder mystery, and when you find out the murder and their motive, is it's a bit. Yeah. Bleh. But yeah, he's a very fascinating... What I will say, though, is <laughs> I read the books first because I'm now on the third one, or I just bought the third one the other day. And um, uh, reading the books, Simpson is portrayed as quite, as quite a... I don't know if you'll agree, quite a dashing character. Yeah. And sort of get up and go... When you look at images of Simpson, it's not the one that was conjured in my mind reading the no. books. Um, he is very no. much your sort of classic-looking Victorian classic doctor. <laughs> Victorian doctor slash wizard. Literally, he looks like a wizard. He actually does. Yeah. Wizard uh, with, like, quite heavy-set gentleman with sort of big sort of sideburns. And, yeah, yeah. He's, he's not what came to mind when I was like, no. oh, that's what he really looked like. Maybe when he was that young, 28-year-old dashing doctor. Maybe. Maybe he was. He was more so then. But um, but yeah, I find his story really fascinating because he did sort of pioneer, I suppose, women's medicine, really? Kind of? Yeah. Because, well, it's only a... It's not a, it's a type of medicine that only affects, like, half the population, really. Very true. Um, so... He is very important in that respect, and obviously we wouldn't have our modern anaesthetics today without him <laughs> starting chloroform of a Friday night. Call the Midwife would be a very different show. 
That would be a very oh my god, they should do call the midwife eighteen forty style. <laughs> yeah. It would still have to have Trixie Franklin in it. It would, in a little corset and a little Yeah. I shouldn't have had a bustle because there weren't bustles in the eighteen forties. But it would be a slightly more bristle show than what it already is. Yeah. But I highly recommend the Raven Fisher novels. Very good folks, if you're looking for some gothic murder mystery. They're really good, but if you if you're squeamish, not great. Yeah, yeah, not great. We did it with the away. Yeah, it doesn't shy no. away from the brutality um, yeah. of that of that time. So, uh, but yeah, Mister Simpson was a very interesting, interesting gentleman, and um, once again had ties to other physicians we have spoken about. Yeah, I mean they were all. The medical industry in the Victorian age was incestuous because they all crop up in it each was. other's stories constantly. It's true. Constantly. It's true. As always, please pop along to our Instagram and our Facebook. Give us likes and follows there. We post all of our corresponding photos up there every week and it just gives you a nice little visual to go along with the story, along with our Magic Hat Mondays where you can give your responses to our questions. Our We Love a Link Wednesdays, where we join links between different stories that we've told. And of course, Fun Fact Friday, where you will learn some kind of fun Scottish fact. If you happen to have a question for the magical hat, if you either email us or message us it over, it will be written down on a little sheet of paper, folded up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes. Also, if you happen to own an Apple device, if you could head on over to that little purple logo of Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review. It would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world. And thank you for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. Was that gothic? A wee bit. <laughs>